0: On today's episode, I'm answering questions all about heat rash in dogs. I'm talking about the best way to treat cruciate ligament rupture, and then I'm moving on to vaccine-related tumours in cats. You don't want to miss this episode, but first, let's cue the music. You're listening to the Dr. Alex Answers podcast, the show that answers all of your dog and cat health questions so they can live healthier, happier lives. And here's your host, veterinarian, Dr. Alex Avery. Hi and welcome to episode number 17 of the Dr Alex Answers Show. Now if we've not met before then I'm Dr Alex, the veterinarian behind ourpetshealth.com, and on the Dr Alex Answers Show my aim is to answer all of your dog and cat health and care questions just to help you look after your pet to the best of your ability. I'm really grateful that you're here spending your time with me and if you're not already subscribed then make sure you hit that subscribe button on whatever podcasting app you're listening to just so that you don't miss out on my future episodes of this show. And let's jump into the very first question which was sent in by Prajaktha who says, my dog has many bumps on its body due to heat. I've tried many remedies but there's just no result. The lumps are still there. What should I do? Well, i I'll start off by saying that heat rash is actually a pretty uncommon problem in dogs. Uh, You know, at least in my experience, I've never worked in a tropical uh, climate. I've, I've kind of always worked in kind of temperate climates where it can get quite hot, but, you know, certainly not really extremely hot. But certainly in my experience, heat rash is really a very uncommon thing. So, we absolutely need to be sure that there's no other cause for the lumps on the skin. And there can be a number of different causes for skin lumps in dogs. So we could, for example, have insect bites that's causing an allergic reaction, kind of like a hives. There might be some other kind of allergic reaction that's also causing skin swelling. So um, bites, it could be something, a, a chemical that's got on the skin, um, anything like that. We could have a skin infection, so multiple um, kind of hot spots, we call them. So like a moist pyoderma, dermatitis. Um, we could even get something like a mast cell tumour where uh, the the mast cells are full of something called histamine, which is what gets released in an allergic reaction, um, and that can cause these skin lumps. We can also get other skin tumours that can look very different or can look like anything really. So there's a whole load of different things that we should be thinking about uh, other than just heat rash, you know, the history is going to make a lot of difference um, here in this case if it's something that only comes up in hot weather and then it goes down and seems to clear when it's cooler you know that is going to suggest it's a hot uh, a heat rash but if it's the first time that this has happened then definitely getting the dog checked over by the vet just to check that there's nothing more serious going on or nothing that needs any other treatments now if it is a heat rush then really keeping your dog cool is going to be the key here and that's going to involve access to plenty of water just so they could drink as much as they need to use a fan maybe just to help keep them cool have a cooling collar wrap or mat so you can get these things that you either soak with water um, and will help cool your dog through evaporation or you can actually just put in the the fridge or the freezer and then you can wrap it around their their neck or their shoulders and that helps them lose heat you could give them frozen treats um so free uh dog food in a kong which will help cool them down you can have a sprinkler in the garden or a paddling pool for them to to get wet in you know make sure there's shade if your dog's outside and if they're kept outside make sure they've got some shelter so they can just get out of that baking sun if they're overweight then you know, losing weight is going to be a really big thing, so fat is a great insulator, and if they've got a big fat coat on effectively, then that's going to really increase the chance of them getting hot equally if they've got a big thick coat if they're you know the coat's very thick or if they've got long hair, then really grooming them, giving them a good clip out in the hot weather in the summer is going to help keep them cool and then finally, if you're walking them when you're exercising them, stick to the early morning and late evening, you know so those are all good ways to keep a dog cool, and that should really in the first instance get rid of any heat rash. But like I said at the very beginning, if you've not already, get your dog checked over by the vet because it might be there's something else going on. And if you want to know more about all these tips to keep a dog cool then check out my free ebook which is all about hot weather dog care which covers everything you need to know about keeping your dog safe and comfortable in the sun you can download it today for free at rpetshealth.com slash summer dog care and just learn how to keep your dog cool how to recognize the signs of heat stroke and how to cool them down quickly if they are starting to overheat you can also read um, just about how hot a parked car can get and also learn about the common barbecue dangers amongst other things so just head over to rpetshealth.com slash summer dog care to pick up your free copy today you're listening to the dr alex answers show and moving on next to a question from karen who says what's the best way to treat cruciate ligament rupture? Surgery is way too expensive and the lower priced places have long waiting periods. You know, cruciate ligament, it's one of the most common causes of persistent lameness in dogs, especially larger breed dogs. Uh, And there are some breeds that are more likely to get this, but we do see it from from every breed, from small, small to large. So there is a reasonable chance that your dog may become affected with cruciate ligament rupture. So cruciate ligament rupture it can come in a couple of different varieties so we can get a partial rupture where there's just a little bit of damage but the ligament as a whole is still intact and then we can get complete rupture where there's no ligament left and that's when there's a lot of instability in the joint so the joint moves in ways that it shouldn't do it's really painful and it's a real problem so rather than being a traumatic event which is really what happens in ACL rupture in people so uh, anterior cruciate ligament rupture uh, the ligament in dogs tends to actually just weaken over time so you absolutely might have a case of a dog jumping over a fence um, and getting their leg trapped and ending kind of dangling by their leg that could cause this rupture if they're falling from a height or if they get um, knocked over on the road then that can cause an acute um, kind of traumatic rupture but by and large most of these cases tend to be just a weakening of the ligament over time and then with an incident that isn't particularly severe so it's not a big traumatic event the the cruciate ligament will just um kind of fray and then completely rupture. Now the reason that this is important is because actually around 30 to 50 percent of dogs will rupture their other cruciate ligament within about 12 months of that first cruciate ligament going and that's obviously really important because we're potentially talking about expensive surgeries to fix this and it may be that you need to pay for a second surgery within 12 months of that first one so you know that's something really important to consider when you're deciding which route is going to be manageable for you and is best for your dog now there's a couple of different ways that we can manage cruciate ligament rupture in dogs we can manage it conservatively and we can manage it surgically so with surgery about 90 percent or over 90 percent of dogs will have a good outcome and that means that they'll have a minimal lameness and they'll return to their normal function so that's you know really encouraging now for dogs that are under 15 kilos actually about 85 percent will have a good outcome with conservative management and i'll go into what that means in a little bit for dogs over 15 kilos though the success with conservative management falls to around 20 percent. so you can see that if we're not doing surgery in our larger dogs our dogs over 15 kilos we can expect only about one in five to have a a really successful outcome meaning that they'll have um, little lameness and they'll be able to return to normal function compared to nine out of ten dogs with surgery having a good outcome so you know that's really strong a strong argument that our bigger dogs our larger dog breeds really need to have surgery for this disease now Surgical management, like I say, will almost always result in a better outcome. You know, faster recovery as well is going to is going to be a case um, with less arthritis and pain going forward you know although there's maybe less of a difference in these small breed dogs and also those with just a partial rupture as well now there have been a number of different surgical techniques over the years uh, and this is maybe something where we're getting into kind of the expensive nature of this surgery so there there are ligament replacement surgeries and there are something called osteotomies where we're actually cutting bone and we're changing the angles and the mechanics within the joint itself now the cost difference between these techniques can be significant and they're really just a reflection of the the technical aspects of the surgery being performed the equipment needed the training that needs to go on um any implants that are being used so there might be um plates there might be titanium wedges so there's a lot of complexity within some of these advanced osteotomies compared to maybe the lig- ligament replacement where we're we're putting a nylon or another um kind of temporary well not temporary uh kind of a replacement a fake ligament on the outside of the joint which is much technically less to demanding. Um, but really, in general, osteotomy, so the more advanced procedures, they are felt to produce a better result. They, they seem to produce a faster recovery, so dogs using their legs much more quickly than with the, the lateral suture techniques. You know, although there's not completely clear data to back this up irrefutably that's the general feeling amongst the the kind of the profession and it's certainly something that i've seen as well in the dogs that have these osteotomies they're they're walking you know within a few days they're walking really well we still absolutely need to protect them we still need to go through the period of rest um, and confinement just to make sure that while everything's healing there's no extra strain that could cause problems with the surgical site but really osteotomies are you know generally preferable now they do come at a bigger cost so that's not to say that the the ligament replacement techniques are um are worthless i think they're they're definitely superior in our large breed dogs to doing nothing but you know that's what you really need to think about when it comes to kind of looking at just the cost of surgery you know what actual surgery is going on and what's the likely benefit of having that surgery compared to one of the other ones done now if you can't afford surgery then you know for smaller dogs especially conservative management is absolutely appropriate and what that really involves is complete rest for about six to eight weeks uh, and that's kind of confining them so that they can't jump anywhere they're not running around they're not kind of doing the wall of death in in a pen outside they've not got a really big garden where they can actually exercise anyway we really need to confine them to a small room or to a crate for six to eight weeks, only going out to the toilet to walk um, on a lead Uh you know really just to rest that joint so that there's as little as possible forces going through that knee we're going to give painkillers as well obviously we need to lose weight if a if a dog is overweight we can give physiotherapy we want to just maintain the the kind of the normal motion within the the joint we don't want it to completely seize up and we also really need to maintain the muscle mass as well because it's very common that we get a lot of muscle loss in a dog's leg following rupture of their cruciate ligament um, and maybe you want to consider a knee brace as well although you know. I, I'm uncertain how much benefit these actually are and i discussed that in a in in the dr alex answers episode number five if you want to learn more about knee braces after cruciate ligament rupture now for large dogs then conservative treatment it it will likely result in an improvement for most but this improvement really is unlikely to be even nearly as good as surgery but you know if surgery is an absolute no-go if there's no way that you can afford it then you know conservative treatment is something that we're going to obviously be wanting to do you know don't expect really big things with it complete rest is absolutely essential and painkillers again is really essential because we don't want our dog to be in pain gone are the days where we think if a dog's in pain they'll rest their leg Um, they won't use it and that's a good thing. No we need to be resting them ourselves, we need to be confining them and we need to be giving them painkillers. Now one thing I would caution against is using conservative management in the first instance and then surgery if things aren't improving as well as we would expect. You know especially if we're monitoring them for more than just a couple of weeks because by this stage there's going to be a lot of damage within the joint already and you're not going to get the full benefits of surgery. So I think if there's a possibility or if there's a likelihood that you can afford surgery and you're thinking that it will be the better thing for your dog then go for it sooner rather than later don't wait until you've already got a lot of joint damage uh, and the conservative management isn't really working before jumping to surgery because like I say you're not going to get the the best bang for your buck and then once Kind of a dog has improved be that through the conservative management or after surgery and they've gone through their their immediate post-operative care i um, mean the instructions that your your vet has given you then we're going to need ongoing care to help keep arthritis at a minimum. And to also try and reduce rupture of that other other knee, ideally. So that's going to involve weight management again. So making sure that our pets are nice and lean rather than overweight, which is a really common problem. You can use a ramp for the car or for the stairs so that they're not having to jump up. You can use pain control, avoid slippery floors just so that they're not not slipping over and hurting themselves. You know, definitely you don't want to be uh, ball chasing because that involves really rapid acceleration, changing direction, stopping, all kinds of things that put immense strain through the joints. You know, so. So there's a whole load of other things now if your dog has had cruciate ligament rupture then i'd encourage you to sign up to my arthritis mini course which you can find on ourpetshealth.com resources and that really will take you through some of the things that we can be doing to help keep our dogs as comfortable as possible and minimizing the effects of any arthritis that they are suffering from And then just remember that the information that I give in these podcasts is not a substitute for a consultation and examination with your pet's veterinarian and should not be taken as specific advice for any individual pet. So if your pet's unwell, if they're injured, if they're suffering from any kind of problem, or you've got concerns about what they're doing, then talking to your vet is always going to be the best course of action. Get your question answered at dralexanswers.com. And then the final question on today's show is from Ken Toomer, who writes that their understanding was that the majority of injection related sarcomas were linked to the use of adjuvants in vaccines, which unfortunately are still used in some veterinary practices despite the existence of safer, non adjuvanted alternatives. But, you know, what really is the truth behind that? And this question comes after another one of my questions about side effects of vaccinations, where, uh, you know, I did talk about injection site sarcomas sarcomas rather than vaccine-related sarcomas. So cats get this phenomenon called injection site sarcomas or fibrosarcomas. They develop in about one in ten thousand to thirty thousand vaccinated cats. So you know they really are very rare, but they're a real risk. Now it was first thought to be completely vaccine related, that vaccines were responsible for causing these tumours in these unfortunate cats. But it's now become much more clear that it's actually just the act of having any form of injection that can trigger the cancer formation. So it may be the actual, just the fact of the needle going in, or it may be the injection of any substance that's triggering this cancer formation. It's not just vaccines. Now, vaccines are just the most common common injection that most cats will get so you know certainly in our younger cats they're you know really not going to be getting many other injections at all so the vaccines may make up a reasonably large percentage if you like of vaccines um, again certainly while they were while they're young now the role of any adjuvants as Kentuma as kind of suggested you know are adjuvants the cause well that really is unclear, and that's including aluminium adjuvants or any other adjuvants. It's really not clear that they are responsible to any greater degree than some of the other things that are causing this problem. Now, potentially, these tumours are more likely following leukemia and rabies vaccinations but they've also been found to develop after a range of different other drug injections they've been found around suture material that has kind of dissolving suture material after a surgery so that could be a mass removal in the first instance or it could be a a stitch up for a wound you know whatever reason that there's been some suture material used and there's even been one case of, uh, of injection site sarcoma following microchip implantation so the bottom line is that really anything can cause this. It may be that some adjuvanted vaccines, so our leukaemia and our rabies vaccines, are more likely to cause this. But the bottom line is, yeah, the risk is really very, very small. So only about one in 10 to 30,000 cats being affected. Now, like I say, the cause is unclear, but it is thought that just the inflammation that can result following the injection of any substance or the, the act of having a needle and act of being injected is actually just not controlled properly. So is there an actual problem within a certain line of cats? Are certain cats genetically predisposed to getting that or genetically more likely to get this compared to other cats? You know, but whatever... It's happening this inflammation may be resulting in cell mutation and then cancer formation so you know what are we looking for well a small lump immediately following vaccination or any injection is really not unusual but it shouldn't persist for any longer than a couple of weeks and we can think about something called the 3 one rule so that is if something is persisting after three months post injection if the size is larger than two centimeters at any time point so if it's you know got to two centimeters either straight away or if it's grown and it's got to that size, or if it's increasing in size one month following injection, then those are all triggers that this could be something that we need to to be aware of. Now, in most cases, if we've got a, a, a swelling after injection or after vaccination it's going to be smaller it's not going to be persisting for that length of time and it's not going to be increasing in size a month after injection so uh, you know those those are all things that are not going to happen in a normal case so if those are happening then we really absolutely need to get onto it at Kind of straight away at the earliest opportunity, and the reason for that is that these um, cat injection site sarcomas they really are aggressive tumors that need prompt, um, you know, really aggressive surgery as well. Now, ideally, they're going to be guided by CT or MRI scanning just so that we can see the exact nature of the tumor. We can try and work out exactly where it is so that we can remove it completely at surgery because it, it it's sometimes the case that little tendrils, little tentacles, if you like, are sent out in different directions which are very difficult, if not impossible, to to pick up either before surgery or even during surgery. So if we can get some advanced imaging in, then we're going to have a much better chance of, uh, of removing it completely now after surgery there's then the potential for other follow-up treatments and that's like um, chemotherapy or radiation therapy Uh, and that's really going to depend on uh, kind of the surgery how that went and what uh, resources are available in your area as well as costs as well being a consideration but you know the bottom line is that these are invasive tumours they're really nasty tumours they're quite aggressive and there's a high risk of recurrence so like I say a lot will send out little tentacles and it's very difficult to get every single tumour cell which means that that will come back so you know that highlights again why we want to be getting onto this at the earliest opportunity just to give ourselves the best chance of removing it completely and then finally 25% of tumors so one in four will actually metastasize which means they will spread to other parts of the body and once that happens that's really bad news. Now as a result of a feline injection site or vaccine site sarcomas um, tumors then there has been a move to change where we're actually injecting cats and that's moved from the scruff so typically injections would be at the scruff so between the kind of shoulder blades you know there's lots of skin there it's not very sensitive so it's a great place in theory to inject a cat but we're we're trying to move to the lower thigh or to the lower front leg if possible because that's going to make any tumor easier to completely remove through amputation and while that might seem really extreme it's very difficult to remove this tumor as i've said in its entirety And actually cats will do very, very well with three legs and and often that's going to be a case of a three-legged cat is going to survive whereas if we're trying to remove a tumour from somewhere else it's very likely that we're not going to get it all. It's going to come back and it's going to spread and it's going to ultimately result in the death of that cat. So there has been a switch to to inject our cats in slightly different areas just to reduce the impact of an injection site sarcoma, an injections injection site tumor, should it happen. But remember, this is a really very rare thing. And we can't lose track of the lose sight of the fact that we're giving these injections for a reason. A lot of the the diseases that we're vaccinating against are really life-threatening or life-limiting or have a massive impact on quality of life and are very common as well. So, you know, we don't want to have the extreme reaction of saying vaccines are completely uh, are completely unnecessary and we don't want to risk uh, our cat getting a tumour. Now, that said, we also do want to give our vaccines at an appropriate interval we don't want to give more vaccines than our cat needs based on their lifestyle and we don't want to give them more frequently and that's something that i'm actually going to discuss in the next episode of the dr alex answers show And so that's it for this episode of the podcast. If you found it helpful, I'd love it if you could share it with three of your pet-owning friends. And if you're feeling super kind, then leaving me a review on iTunes or rpetshealth.com slash review helps more than you can imagine with other people finding this podcast. But that's it from me for this week. So until next time, take care. You've been listening to the Dr. Alex Answers podcast. Be sure to rate, review, subscribe, and we'll see you on the next episode of the show where you ask the questions and Dr. Alex answers.